The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Good morning, Scott. Morning, Mitch. Good morning, Scott. Boy, you know, we just keep hearing more and more about inflation. It seems uh, at least our leaders are starting to take note, but uh, it doesn't really seem to see any end in sight at this point, do we? Not yet. That's a good uh, good observation, Scott. You know what? They're, they're raising interest rates, and that there is causing, you know, ramifications in, in both the stock market, housing market, um, you know, basically lines of credit, any anything that has to do with interest rates. So that will slow down the spending, just raising interest rates. But the other side of it, um, you know, the government's trying to chip in now, or at least they're talking about lowering deficits. So again, less money that will go into the economy. And both of those, that two-pronged approach should start to limit the inflation effects. And, you know, it, it wouldn't be fair really just to simply keep raising interest rates without the government doing their part also. Because if they raise interest rates and the government keeps spending lots of money and doling it out on different programs, then that's actually hurting the inflation effect. So it's good that they're talking about it. And once they kind of get that under wrap and inflation starts to that bubble, you know, I would call it the pandemic bubble of inflation because, you know, rightfully so, there's a lot of money trying to help people and families out during that time. But it, that has to end and that bubble is going to get through and uh, we're, we're, they're doing a good job in fighting it. I think it will, they will get to the break the back of inflation. And, uh, but we are seeing, and, you know, the other part of the pandemic was housing prices and a lot yeah. of other things, but housing prices went nuts, like 53% in two years. Like that was crazy. That's, I liken that to like almost a speculative stock. Like things just mm. do not do that. Mm. And, you know, and then you, so now we're talking about, well, maybe housing prices should drop. And we're seeing that already. 13% drops in the last three months. And I would suggest it might be more now in the Halton area. I don't know about, you know, wherever the listeners listening, but and depending on location. So we are seeing some differences now. And I know Mitch, that's uh, right up your alley right now on today's discussion. Yeah, thanks for that. The, the long expected correction in Canada's housing market is certainly underway. It's It very often lags the stock market because the stock market is so easy to buy and sell, especially with phones these days. You don't even have to call in. You can buy and sell right right from your couch if you really want to. But if you want to buy and sell a house, it takes a lot longer to do that. So it's taking longer from the housing market to kind of come down and correct a little bit versus the stock market. You're seeing many of the markets down 12 to even up to 30% with the NASDAQ so far this year. So you're seeing the housing market slowly get its way back down to where the stock market has gotten to. And uh, May was a pretty big indicator of that because May is typically a very strong month when it comes to home sales. Data from the Canadian Real Estate Association reported that home sales fell 8.6% in May from the month before and 21.7% from a year ago. So last May, they had significantly more sales than this year. And for the first time since the pandemic rally, Again, home resales on a national level dropped below a record level uh, recorded in February 2020. So we're getting back to before pandemic levels and interest rates, like you mentioned, and psychology may explain this. 
mortgage rates have gone from lows from about 1.5% to now close to 5% for a five-year fixed rate and variables headed for 4 to 5% also. Uh, this also means that the stress tests, even to qualify for a mortgage, are now near 7%. So to qualify for a mortgage, you're going to have to qualify at a 7% interest on that mortgage, which is also significantly higher. So those mortgages are also tougher to get, especially for younger buyers who are trying to get their foot in the door, which was a large part of what was driving the market was people, younger people trying to get their foot in the door, the FOMO of missing out, seeing all these houses going up significantly. But psychology, a huge factor in why these went up so much. Earlier this year, Canadians actually widely expected home prices to keep rising. In a survey, uh, a record 64% of Canadians expected home prices to keep rising this year, which caused many buyers to stretch their finances with the fear of missing out or FOMO, if you will. In terms of the average home price changed from February to May 2022, each province has been hit differently. Ontario and BC, they were coming in at the worst. They, they rose the most during the pandemic, which typically means they're also going to come down the most after the pandemic. So BC has dropped 8.4% since February this year. And Ontario from February to May this year has had a 10% drop in prices. Uh, one factor that also impacts these areas is the capability of remote work. People from other parts of the country during COVID realized they, they don't need to live in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, or somewhere where they really didn't want to live at the time, but the work was there, so they had to go into work. So they moved to BC and Ontario. And this actually pushed the housing market up significantly more in the more desired provinces to live into. But now with COVID easing significantly, quite a few employees or employers are switching to a hybrid model or even some fully back in the office. So those remote workers, are they're having to go back to those provinces and they're going to have to go back to the office. Ultimately, this has been expected and forecasted for a long time. Uh, I know even before the pandemic, you're talking 2014, 2015, 2016, people were always saying the housing market has to come down. So it's it's been hot for a while, but COVID just really exaggerated how hot it really got. And it's it's been due for a little correction. And remember, just before the pandemic hit, interest rates were starting to creep up. I mean, things were on their, uh, were trending north just before this hit. And then obviously the pandemic and, you know, relief is there. Yeah, that's exactly what went on. The, um, you know, it was 3.95, I believe, was the, like a, a line of credit at that time. So, and, and, yeah, and you're after, you're having to qualify, I believe, at 4.45, around 5%. So that was before pandemic. Yeah, so we're basically at the same spot and uh, mm-hmm. won't be long till we're past it. They're also still, speaking of another interest rate hike yet, still, if not two. So it, this the, uh, the uncertainty of what the payments would be, particularly with people with line of credits and variable rate mortgages, those are the ones that are at most risk. Um, obviously, the ones that had locked in their mortgage earlier, eh, not so bad. You know, they're sitting there thinking, okay, I'm good. But there is still that anxiety of, okay, I hope they... Kind of settle down and come back down a little bit before my renewal date yeah there's certainly some question marks out there and i i know many and myself also doubt that the interest rate hikes are done uh inflation's it's going to cool down eventually it will go down but the interest rates still are going to rise a little bit which means mortgage rates are also going to go up as well uh many cases in gta in the gta uh buyers purchase their home before selling their old homes thinking that the market will remain hot and it won't be an issue. And now the houses that didn't sell prior are much tougher to sell Mm -hmm. and they're being forced to accept much lower prices for their home. So this is also pushing Ontario 
and Vancouver or BC uh, more than other provinces because they're typically the more expensive homes. And these people were flipping these really expensive homes that had massive uh, bidding wars. And now they're being forced to take significantly less. And it's it's taking a lot of the, the flippers out and really putting them in their place a little bit because now they're kind of stuck with these homes that they thought it was just too easy. It, when things are too easy, you know things are a little too hot and yeah. it's got to come down at some point like easy money only lasts for a small a bit of time and then it comes back to planet earth at some point plus you also got a feel for those who you know in the last year started to panic and thought we got to jump in we got to jump in and this is the biggest expense you'll ever have the biggest investment you'll ever make you can't just panic you got to really take a deep breath and step back and say, is this really the right time? And I mean, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, but um, boy, you have to feel for some who panicked and thought, if I don't get in now, I never will. And absolutely. And this is the whole idea of FOMO and, and the kind of mentality that was going on during this kind of, in the, you know, right up until just you know, a few months ago, people felt if they don't get in now, they'll never get in. And, you know, grandparents were helping kids buy in investment properties, people that never own investment property in your life, all of a sudden they're becoming investment developers or what have you. And, and buying high. And buying high. And as Mitch said, then of course, then they're moving up saying, I'm going to get a more expensive house, sell mine. And my house is worth this much. Well, it's going to be interesting when it comes to financing, if they hadn't sold their first one yet, you know, what's the bank, you know, you may have to add more to your mortgage because you didn't get what you thought. And that can make a massive change in what you can afford. So this again, comes back to trying to get the emotion out of major purchases like this and sitting down with your certified financial planner to make sure you're, you're following a proper course of action and not just getting caught up in the emotion. Yeah. I mean, no, no market can keep going up forever. Um, but if you zoom out and look at long-term returns, uh, the market's still very healthy. The prices in the GTA are still up 62% where they were up three years ago. So even if we drop a little bit more, that's a significant gain in just three years. But uh, how is this going to affect mortgages and homes and what will it do to your cash flow? I'm going to take a little example here. Uh, current common situation is someone bought a home for a million dollars. They put 20% down and have an $800,000 mortgage and they locked in at 2%. This would give them a monthly payment of about $3,387 a month. And now mortgage rates are much higher. Many are actually over 5% when I was looking around, but I'm going to use IG's five-year rate at 4.69, the fixed rate. And what will it cost? What will the house have to cost to be the same monthly mortgage cost? If you have a 4.69% interest rate mortgage and put 20% down, the house is actually going to have to cost $750,000 to get the same monthly mortgage cost, which is 25% less than what they're paying at the 2% mortgage. So that's a pretty significant drop and we're not quite there yet. And really, realistically, housing markets should be based off of affordability. And so the affordability, the market's going to have to come down a little bit more so that people can afford those mortgages. But that's a, if you that's a great point, because uh, we, they, a lot of experts were talking 20 to 30% drop from their peak. So that would actually bring in line the cash flow of the same monthly mortgage payment. Yeah. Uh, so it, it does still have a little bit to go. Like I said, the housing market does lag the stock market and many stock markets are down 16 to 30%, depending upon which one you're looking at. So the housing market's on its way down a little bit here. Uh, it will get back down to the equilibrium of affordability. 
And uh, yeah, the best thing to do is just to have a great financial planner that's going to know your cash flows. And also locking in for the next four years that you mentioned, uh, in four years, if your interest rate does go up, knowing that you didn't stretch yourself to buy that house so that your cash flow isn't totally stretched out and house board becomes house broke um, <laughs> after your five-year mortgage is up. So make sure you're talking to your financial planner, get some cash flow uh, needs analysis done so that you're uh, all set with the interest rates if they do continue to go up. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Taking a break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. We're going to talk uh, about something I'm kind of familiar with, cottage ownership. Yeah, there's nothing much better than sitting at the cottage, feet up, possibly a cold drink in your hand. Is there, Scott? I like that. I'm doing it now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, yeah, I, no, it's never mind. <laughs> no, it's it's a great uh, it's a great kind of, uh, you know, may not be only Canadian, but certainly it's it's a lot of people's dream to have that kind of lifestyle. It's a so, well sought after. And quite often it's like, OK, We've got this and we've raised our kids here and our grandkids have loved it. And, it, and it's, it's such an emotional attachment to the point that it's, it's very hard to make rational decisions about a cottage. More so than I, I would suggest any other asset class, even your own house. People are buying house, houses and they'll go through many houses over their lifetime, but not the cottage. No, no, my, my dad passed that on to me or I just got it. And we had so many great times and there's memories attached to that. So it's, it's a different asset. And so Tim Sesnick from the Globe Mail has written a lot of great articles on the cottage. If anybody wants to uh, Google those um, about secession planning and myths. And I'm going to go over some of the discussions and bring in some of my own points with cottage ownership too. But he, he started off with uh, myths. And I like three of, the, of his myths right off the get-go is myth number one, leaving the cottage to the kids is very straightforward. Well, I don't know if that could be further from the truth. I have dealt with a lot of clients that have wanted to leave cottages to their kids. And first and foremost, I would say, do all the kids really want the cottage? Okay, um, that's very important. Um, can they afford the cottage? Well, that's something else you should be talking about. And what they should get right off the get-go is a cottage agreement. And this is an agreement where it's, if you were to leave the money to the kids, here's the agreement and you show all the kids. First of all, transparency is utmost important with cottage ownership because without transparency, you're almost saying, okay, we're going to have a fight. We just don't know when, okay, <laughs> because it's going to happen. And so here's a list of things that should be in the agreement. How is the cottage shared? You know, who gets what week? You know, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I want the month of uh, August and July. I mean, you guys can have it the other 10 months. Well, that's not exactly fair. Um, guest rules. You know how many times you can have guests there? 
what if you want to rent it? You know, is there renting rules? Okay, I, I, my week is, I get three weeks, but I'm going to rent one of my weeks out. Well, is that even allowed? You know, you have to put that in writing because, you know, one of the kids might say, hey, it's my three weeks, I can do what I want. Well, yes, but it is not necessarily your cottage. You own a piece of that cottage. So cost sharing, how are we going to pay for this? Okay, is there going to be one bucket of money and we just kind of tap into it all the time? Or are we paying as we go? Or, you know, we just split up all the bills every month as, you know, try to find a system that works best. Generally speaking, I found a joint cottage bank account is the way to go. where Everybody throws in so many dollars a, a year and they simply withdraw money from it as they see fit. Now, again, then you got to say, okay, what's it for? Are we having a major improvement? Okay, not a big deal. Um, that probably wouldn't be part of the normal cost sharing. So that would be a, a one-off. And what if we're spending the money for drinks for our guests? Probably not the best thing to use that cottage money for that. So you got to make what is included in the cost sharing, you know, electricity, you know, normal maintenance, those type of things. And then what about physical labor? Okay, it's, uh, it's great you go to the cottage, but I don't know about you, Scott, but there isn't a weekend that I ever visit another, people's, another person's cottage that they don't talk about what needs to be done around their cottage. It's just an extra lawn to mow, that's all. <laughs> At least. It, it's a lawn with a lake, that's all it is. Yes, a lawn, lake, and maybe a couple of trees that need to be chopped down, or maybe there was that tornado that took place, and you got you to, I, I talked to a friend, he literally spent 39 hours of 53 hours at his cottage, helping out all the neighbors yeah. because of a, a recent tornado. Yeah. Um, you know, he was loved by the neighbors, by the way, with him and his chainsaw and another person with a, a big tractor. But again, it's, it's a job too. So mm -hmm. it's another level of responsibility owning a cottage. So you got to say, okay, here are the rules about sharing that, that, that workload. Um, nothing worse than seeing your brother-in-law sitting there, feet up on the deck with a with a drink in his hand while you're mowing the lawn so okay and you know people don't realize too um you know you have to pick if you're doing it for an investment or for uh leisure what have you um you have to it has to be something that you're interested in it's not just like buying a rental property and renting it out and what have you 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 have to enjoy uh, doing all of that, the puttering and so on and so forth, that, that therefore it's not work. But if you're just looking for something to rent or whatever, um, it's probably not your bag. Yeah, it's a lifestyle. It's a yeah, lifestyle decision. Absolutely. And, you really, and all the people that I've had the fortunate enough to go visit a few people, they all love doing this kind of stuff. They're mm -hmm. all talking about the recent projects they're doing. And it's a labor of love. Absolutely. So myth number two, leaving the cottage to one child, the one that wants it is great. And I'll leave the rest of the assets to the other child, assuming there's two kids. Sounds good on paper. Okay, yeah, let's say it's a million dollar cottage and I'll leave a million dollar investments, easy peasy. However, what about the tax bill on that cottage? So let's say there's a, a $200,000 tax bill. Well, if they put joint ownership on the cottage, that means it automatically goes to the child that wants the cottage, easy. Well, who's gonna pay the tax bill? Well, it's part of the estate. And, and quite often, so part of the estate you know, where's this tax bill going to go? Well, out of the liquid assets, which the other child got. So next thing you know is there's a, there's a fight, a tax fight, if you will, on trying to say who's going to pay this tax bill. So really the way to work this is not to say, okay, you're getting the cottage. It, the easier way, you're, the whole estate split 
okay? And the one that wants the cottage has the first right of refusal to buy out the other sibling out. And then that also puts a little bit of uh, you know, money where your mouth is. It's one yeah. saying, oh, I want the cottage. The next thing is, oh, geez, do I really want it. Now I'm actually having to take a mortgage yeah. um, to buy out that my piece of the cottage. So how much you want the cottage really comes down to money. Uh, myth number three, placing the um, cottage in joint names with the kids saves tax. Yes and no. First of all, it saves probate because it automatically goes to the kids. Well, let's say you're just going to buy your first cottage and the kids are all, say, adults, and you're going to put it in all four names, assuming there's two kids and husband, wife. Well, yes, that would help. There's no tax to be doing that at that point because you're all buying cottages at the same time. But let's say you've had a cottage for 20 years and you're going to add the kids to the cottage. Well, when you add half the kids, so say husband, wife and two kids, half the cottage is now in the kid's name. You've sold half your cottage to the kids. It's a deemed disposition at the price, at the date. So you now have to get an appraisal of what the cottage is worth at the time you put it in joint ownership and you have to pay tax on the capital gain. Well, you haven't sold the cottage. So where's this money gonna come from to pay the tax? You have to often take out a loan to pay the tax or you have to take it out on investments, whatever the case is. So then upon, you now own half a cottage and the kids own half the cottage. Upon your death, you think straightforward, it just goes to the kids. Well, from the point of you've created this joint ownership, you, you own half a cottage still. So there's still growth on that cottage when both the husband and wife pass away. So there's another capital gain and again, more tax. So there is no way to get around particularly this tax bill per se by simply putting in joint ownership. It's complicated. You will save on, save on probate. However, if you start put your two kids as joint owners of a cottage, what is if there's a divorce? One of the kids, they're now adults. Well, that's part of their house. So you, you might have a, a, a ex-daughter or son-in-law have dibs on their, that share of the cottage. So now your son or daughter has to buy them out. And that might be tricky because it could be deemed a second matrimonial home. And it's gone through the, the laws of Ontario and it's tricky. And, it, and if you actually read the letter of the law on the second, second matrimonial home, they say, yeah, it's, hey, I deserve that cottage. That's half mine. So um, also what about liability? Let's say one of your son and daughter own a business and they get sued. Well, that joint ownership of the cottage, that whole cottage is now at risk. Not their portion of the cottage, the whole thing, because it's jointly owned. So you really got to be careful about bankruptcy, liability, divorce, when you add your kids to the cottage. So not straightforward. So again, often we look at this trying to save tax, but often we can look at a, a far worse problem by simply adding the kids to this. Um, and, uh, and one other myth, this is no problem. I'll just give the cottage to my kids now and let them worry about the tax when, you know, when they dispose of it. Well, again, anytime you gift money, a cottage, it's a deemed disposition and you can't give them a deal. It's not like, oh, I'm going to just give it to them for 250,000. It's a million dollar cottage. No, it's deemed at a million dollars. And the tax man will come say, okay, what was that cottage worth at the time you transferred ownership to the kids? So, Lots of tricky parts to a cottage and really a cottage should be part of your financial plan. And I know recently Mitch and I 
we're, we're working on a plan with somebody with a cottage and in this case it was three kids and worked out can they really afford to give the cottage to the kids and on one side you say okay you no longer have as much maintenance to pay but you also don't have an asset anymore so we did a detailed plan on whether it's affordable to do them it's actually better for them simply to in on probably in all cases to simply sell the cottage pay the tax and invest the money but that doesn't accomplish what you're trying to do you want to have this ongoing um, relationship of visiting what used to be your cottage when maybe your grandkids are now out there and it's not yours to worry about so you got to do a plan with the cottage and without the cottage just to see if it's affordable and i know we went through great detail and do this it's quite interesting but again make sure if you're going through this talk to a cfp a certified financial planner because if you try to do this on your own i guarantee you way too much emotion with a cottage and, you know, Don, another note is that, um, you know, a lot of people are looking at this like, oh, my goodness, um, I've just inherited a cottage and that's a windfall. And it is, but it's a windfall that comes tied to a very large expense, whether it's sweat equity or, or whether it's finance. And you've got to be able to afford this and to maintain it. Uh, it's not just a case of, oh, look, now we got a free cottage on our hands. hundred uh, percent. I had a recent, uh, well, about six months ago, the son inherited the cottage. Well, he's got a lot of expenses. He's, he's young. He's got a family. He's got a mortgage. He's, he's you know, covering his bills, but not enough to add another $1,000 a month to owning a cottage. Mm -hmm. So the only way he'll be able to afford a cottage would be to rent the cottage out um, because he wouldn't have the income to do so. So there is one other option, which I thought was genius. Um, if you're over 65, you can move, a money, move your money to a joint partner trust. And this is where Mr. and Mrs. Smith, in this case, say, will put their money into this joint partner trust. It doesn't, it's not a deemed disposition because it's basically just changing ownership. Still, you guys are owning it. The two people are owning it. And it's, uh, so there's no tax to pay. But if Mr. S you now are trustees of this trust, and the only thing in the trust is this cottage. Well, if Mr. Smith dies, it goes to Mrs. Smith. And then Mrs. Smith will use one of the kids as a joint trustee. Really no different than owning it jointly. There's no probate upon the death of one. Uh, but the nice thing about a, a trust, it's not part of public property. A will goes through, can, is, you can see what's in a will because it's public. A trust is not. So if you own this big um, cottage and you don't want everybody to know who got the cottage or what any any of the details this is a way to keep it out of the public's eye and also what if uh, mrs smith remarries it protects the cottage um so and for that matter it also tr protects against creditors if you then down the road want to have it with the kids so they become trustees so again that whole thing about bankruptcy and owning a business there's some protection against liability there so then of course if mrs smith dies it's no longer this joint partner trust. It becomes an asset inheritance trust. And this is, again, there is tax to be paid then because it's a deemed disposition. But in that, you can now add all the beneficiaries to this trust. And it could be your kids. It could even be your grandkids. And it could go for 21 years in a trust. And it's got full protection the way you laid out the trust, who gets what, who owns it. And then down this after, before 21 years is up, you then move it to 
perhaps your great-grandchildren if you wanted to. You're no longer alive, but your kids are the trustees. They can move it to another generation, and therefore, you have to take it out of the trust within 21 years. From there on in, they can keep it till the day they die, and then they have to pay the tax. So you literally can skip a generation of tax by moving it into this asset inheritance trust. So the end of the day, cottage ownership, I, between actual laws make it very confusing. Emotion makes it doubly confusing. What you need to do is sit down with a, you know, first of all, a tax accountant and a certified financial planner, make sure it's the best thing for all, all parties and come up with a cottage financial plan. Or kids, you could just sell it all and put it towards your own house and uh, worry about it later. <laughs> Might and be then, part of the plan. And then rent your parents' old cottage back if you want. <laughs> <laughs> we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. This is interesting, Mitch, because everybody wants to know where they are as far as the average. Are we above average? Are we below average? Uh, is there any value in knowing what the average is when it comes to your network? Well, it's certainly some good questions right there. And I, I know there used to be commercials I, and that used to say, what is your retirement number? And they would like flash beside someone's head and everyone's head was a little different. And net <laughs> worth is nice to know, but it's a little misleading at times, but it is human nature to wonder where you stand in relation to others. Uh, we all want to know what's the average, even when it goes to average height, average age to get married, average income. And this goes even back to uh, test, test grades, getting your average test grade. How did you do compared to the average? So it is human nature to wonder about averages. Also to wonder where you stand in relation to others and uh, comparing yourself to the average uh, can definitely be misleading. But especially now with social media, there's a developed tendency for people to commonly think they're far behind everyone else in their age range. Social media typically only shows the best times of people's lives. And it's very common for people to think, wow, they're doing so good. How do they have a house? How do they have a car? How do they have a kid? And everyone's like, wow, I'm so far behind these people. When in hindsight, it may not be true. Uh, just because they're the same age doesn't mean they're doing the same sort of planning. You might be further ahead in other circumstances, but you're not posting it on social media. But uh, first of all, what is net worth? Net worth is the most base at the most basic level is the value of your assets minus the value of your debts. For example, if you have a $1 million home and a $500,000 mortgage, as well as a hundred thousand investments and a $20,000 car, you have a $620,000 net worth. Uh, it is worth noting the difference between average and median because the difference is very large in these circumstances. Average is taking the total amount added together and dividing it by the amount of subjects. The median is the middle number of all these figures. So the median is likely more accurate because there are many ultra rich uh, net worths that are skewing the average to the high side. And, and I think you'll see that in a few seconds here. 
So the net worth as you're approaching retirement, uh, younger than 35 is $76,300, but the median is $13,900. That's a huge difference. This, is, this broad age span is still a long way from retirement with plenty of time to focus on savings. Uh, then when you get to 35 to 44 bracket, the average net worth is 436,000 and the median is 91,000. Uh, a million dollar net worth is, is a great one to aim for during this bracket, but housing usually takes up a huge one here because they're the biggest assets, as I mentioned in my previous segments. Uh, when you have hit the 45 to 54 bracket, the average net worth is 833,200 and the median is 168,600. So th there's a very common theme here that the average is significantly higher and it's really skewing what really is uh, abroad here. But we see ahead. this, uh, by the way, all the time. You know, people are asking, oh, how am I doing compared to the average? I always say, really, to be honest, um, and I guess I shouldn't be saying the average sucks. I, I guess I should be saying the median sucks. But uh, <laughs> you, you know, we're, we're often dealing with people who are doing pretty well. And you don't want to necessarily compare yourself to that. You want to really do how are you compare to your goals and what you're trying to accomplish rather than how you're doing to the Joneses. Yeah, and that's a great point there. And from age 65 to 74, the average is $1.2 million and the median is only 266,400. So that's almost a million dollar difference between the average and the median. And yet you're mentioning comparing people, what, what was the average? Well, it's really what was being is what you should be comparing to and you just feel a lot better, that's for sure. But they're also a little bit skewed because every situation is very different. You may have a below average net worth, but you've been contributing to a defined benefit pension plan, and that may not be counting towards your net worth. Yeah, you, know, you may be, have a million dollars in a defined benefit plan, and yet you only have a net worth of 200000 So every situation is totally different, and it's misleading. Uh, there are other circumstances. You may have a million dollars in RSP uh, versus someone who has a million dollar in non-reg and TFSA. Well, that RSP is going to be taxed significantly when you take it out. So those net worths are completely different. Uh, so net worth doesn't always paint the picture you like to base your decisions off of. Every situation is totally different. It's, it's, it's always great seeing clients' net worth grow as we work with them for many years. Uh, I know Don has clients uh, for 30 plus years, uh, same with our whole team with Gary. And they started with very minimal and they just started putting away and putting away. And now their net worth is over a million dollars. And that's, it's always exciting to see that. And we we track every time and clients, it's very rewarding to see that. So it's a great thing to build relationships with all of our clients to see where they've started and where they've come through working with them. And uh, having a proper financial plan, with a financial planner is the whole basis to doing that. So net worth, it's great to track, but cash flow management, tax planning, all of the other factors to a financial plan is really what's going to create the success of your retirement, not really comparing yourself to the average or in this case, the median. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Going to take another quick break here. The last segment coming up. <laughs> 
You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905 905- 972-7420. We're number three. We're number We're three. Number three. Uh, <laughs> actually, in this case here, you don't want to be number one. In fact, you probably want to be number 20 hmm. um, because what this was, it was in the Spectator this past week, and Hamilton is now the third most expensive city in Canada. Wow. Yes. In true, fact, actually. it's in top five in North America. Holy smokes. Um, New York, Mississauga, Vancouver, then Hamilton, then Toronto. So we're fourth in North America in terms of most expensive to live in. Now, I had to read through this article a bit more. And it said, okay, first of all, they looked at the 10 most populated cities on both sides of the border. Then they looked at comparing eight amenities. And they took a movie ticket, um, a restaurant, um, takeout, bottled water, a cappuccino, a month at a gym, transit fare, a month-long transit pass, and one month's rent. And they said, okay, these are kind of what people will spend money on. And they compared to that the average, again, going back to averages here, Mitch, income of the city. Now, it turns out that 47% of the average income would, it would take to pay for those items. And the average income in Hamilton is $45,819. So it'd be interesting to see again, if your income is 45,000, are you actually getting a gym membership? Are you getting cappuccinos and you make a transit fare and what your rent would be and you may not be going to movies or going to get takeout that often. But again, it is fair for all cities. And so it turned out the cheapest place to live based on income and amenities was Calgary. And so a higher income and slightly lower cost. And their rent has probably gone down in the last bit with oil prices. Originally, they took a hit. So they're coming back up. But they came. What I thought was kind of interesting is what everybody says we should try to save a certain percentage, say 10, 15 percent of your income so you can retire comfortably. And that whole study was the same idea. It's like, okay, what percentage of your income is going to those eight items? Well, Let's take a look at, there was another um, rule. It's called the rule of 30. I found this fascinating because instead of saying, I'm just simply going to spend 10 or save 10% of my income, I'm going to spend 30% of my income on three things, on retirement savings, daycare, and my mortgage payment. And so I thought this was interesting on the basis that when you're young and you got, day, you got a couple of kids in daycare and a mortgage payment, maybe you can't save much. And you're probably feeling guilty. Well, geez, you know, I've gone to all these financial planners and they say I have to save 10%. I can barely get through daycare and, and my mortgage payment. So a, a perfect example, if you're 30 years old, you've got a couple kids in daycare, the average in Ontario is about 1400 a month for two kids. And that's $16,800. And if you have a $500,000 mortgage at 3%, that's $28,000 a year also in payments on a 25 year mortgage. So that's 45,000 a year just on those two things alone. So then what if you know one spouse is earning 100 and the other spouse is earning 50,000? 
that turns out that's 30% of your income is going to just those two things. There's nothing left for retirement savings. Now, I do argue that you do get to write off your daycare costs up to 8,000 per child. So you would get a refund of $3,200 tax refund, and you could apply that to your RSPs. So I'm going to assume you actually take the refund, put that into retirement savings. And you did that for two years. Well, then your one child is out of daycare. The next child's in, still there. And so, but you can now save 700 a month for retirement in 800 a month. Uh, so, and then you get a refund on the $8,000 still on the going for the other child. So you can still put some money into RSPs because one's out of daycare. Well, after four years now, two with two kids in daycare, two with only one kid in daycare, you've got $28,000 in RSPs. Finally, they're both out of daycare. And now your 30% rule is you can all save the whole daycare cost, put the whole thing, 16,000 a year into RSPs. If you did that right until age 55, which would be when your, your mortgage would be paid off, you'd have $771,000 in RSPs. Well, finally at 55, you got the mortgage paid off and you're gonna save everything. You have no daycare, you have no mortgage payment and the whole 30% now can go into retirement savings. You now would put the 45,000 a year into that and you'd have $2 million at the age of 65. Great plan. How does this all boil down? Funny enough, we always say we should save 10% of what you make. Well, here's a 30 year old right at the beginning. If you had saved $1,403 a month at age 30, you would also would have achieved $2 million at retirement, which by the way, if you make $150,000 is 11% of your income. So it all comes back down to trying to save 10, 11% of your income. But at the end of the day, $2 million is a great figure. Used to be a millionaire, always be the great figure, but $2 million at 5% would give you 100,000 a year income. And uh, based on what your a person's lifestyle, 150,000, that would get you through. So again, rule of 30 is, is another way to look at it. Speak to your financial planner, make sure that you've got something set up so you're disciplined to follow something like this program. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox have been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Thank you, gentlemen. Another great show. Have a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.